entertain me for a minute as I get this up and going. Would the Halpins and the extended Halpins stand up? So these are some of the founding members of Lion and Lamb Church. And uh, you'll rarely see them, but three of our four daughters and their families are here with us for Thanksgiving, and the fourth will show up this week, so we're thrilled to have them. Let me see, guys, if I can get us going on the right road. We're going to start with a short video to introduce the, the uh, teaching this morning. And how are we doing? We're good. Okay. Human beings are hardwired for war. We are worshippers. We are searching for joy, hope, and fulfillment. This longing is deep in the heart of every human being. It wanders around in your soul. out every day to be enveloped by the glory of God. And whether we know it or not, that desire to be amazed, moved and satisfied is actually a universal craving to see God face to face. two places to look. We can search for life in what he created. Or we can look to our creator, for whom and by whom all things exist. That is a perfect introduction for the message this morning, and we're going to be talking about awe this morning, and apologies on the front end, I'm, I'm more bound to my manuscript this morning than normally, so if I'm not looking you in the eyes, don't fall asleep anyway, because when you least expect it, I will. I'll look up from my manuscript, and I'll catch you. We're talking about awe this morning, and brief definition of awe, and we'll relate this to God. Uh, Awe defined a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. Reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. Uh, Awesome as a term has been used and overused in the last couple decades. So if I tell you my house cat is awesome, my house cat is not awesome. Uh, A lion might be awesome, but a house cat is not awesome. And we've so overused the term that we've sort of lost a key element of it. So this morning, we're talking about God as the God of awe, the awesome God. And we'll look at Him in His awesomeness in a few different ways. But God is the ultimate object of our awe, just like the video introduction was talking about. 
we're going to work through this this morning and we're going to look at three different lenses about God and his awe. Awe encompasses elements of fear and even terror. Awe includes the elements of wonder and joy and also a sense of longing and desire. And friends, when you and I find that we're living life short of a sense of awe in who God is and our relationship with Him and our ability to interact with Him and in life for now, we are not really living if we're living with less than a sense of awe. And the great thing is this. God is the most and truly awesome, awe-inspiring, awful, awe-filled joy. And to know Him, to live in Him and with Him, is to be truly awesomely alive. And we should not settle. You and I should not settle, especially as those who know Christ, the source of all life. We should not settle for a life less than this awesomely informed, joy-filled life. We don't have to, and we shouldn't. You remember, this is the fifth in a series called Behold Your God. And the goal of the series is that we look specifically at God in some different ways, some different fashions, use some different lenses, what's true of God. And as we see Him more fully, the goal is that our hearts and our wills are drawn after Him. And as we behold Him, we not only glorify Him for who and what He is, but we become transformed more more fully into His likeness. This whole series is predicated on the truth of Psalm 115, verse 8. Remember the psalmist said that Gentiles who shaped statues, little gods, and worshipped them, they became like the object they worshipped. So if I worship an idol or you worship an idol, we shrink. We don't enlarge our lives. Our lives are shrunk to the status of that idol. Contrarily, if we focus on and worship God Himself, that same process of transformation means we're growing more and more fully into the likeness in the image of God, which is God's work in the life of a Christian. And that's the direction we want to be growing. G.K. Beale said in his book, we become what we worship, what people revere they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. So as we look in our lives, just ask ourselves, is my life moving in the direction of ruin, smaller, Or am I being restored? Am I seeing more of Christ's life in me? And you can determine what the object of your worship is by the direction your life is going. So if I look at my life and it's falling apart, I can assure you God is not the object of our worship. Something else is. Something usually in creation. So, to know God as the ultimate awe-inspiring person and thing in the universe is to plug into real life a life worth living, and it's to be filled with elements of holy fear, awe-filled joy, and desire, some of which will be fulfilled on the earth and some of which will not be fulfilled until we see Christ face to face. If you say, if you assess your life this morning and you say, I am living less than an awe-filled life, awe-filled because of God, then I would tell you, we either are not seeing God as He is, because if you see God as He is, we are filled with awe. Or other things have simply replaced God. We've taken in substitutes, demigods, and we're going to be fashioned after their likeness if that remains the case. G.K. Chesterton said this, 
the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. God is the source of all wonders and awe. If we ever see our life that it's less than filled with awe and wonder, it's not because God is less than awesome. It's because we simply have, have ceased to wonder at His greatness and His awesome qualities. Guys, this um, series I've told you in the past was predicated on G.K. Beale's book. That's what got me thinking about this whole concept of we become what we worship. This morning's lesson specifically came from this book. It's called Awe, Why It Matters for Everything We Think, Say, and Do. It's by a pretty well-known pastor, biblical counselor named Paul Tripp. Now, he tells us why he wrote this book in his introduction. And listen to what he said. See if any of this applies to you or me. He said this, I wrote this book for me. Because at this point in my life, I am more aware than ever that I have a fickle and wandering heart. I wish I could say that every moment I enjoy some created thing initiates in me a deeper worship of the Creator. But it doesn't. Empirical evidence in my life betrays that I give my heart to the worship of the thing that has been made rather than the one who made it. Spending when I don't really have a need, envying what someone else has, or eating when I'm not really that hungry. I wrote this book for me because I'm aware that I need to spend more time gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. I need to put my heart in a place where it can once again be in awe of the grandeur of God that reaches far beyond the bounds of the most expressive words in the human vocabulary. I need awe of Him to recapture, refocus, and redirect my heart again and again. And I need to remember that the war for the awe of my heart still wages inside of me. Now, I resemble those remarks, and I'll bet all of us do to one degree or another. The battle for awe. What's, where is the object of my worship? What am I filled with awe over? Guys, we're going to use three different lenses to look at God as the awesome God. That God is the, the object of all ultimate awe. The first is fear and reverence. The second will be joy and wonder. And the third will be desire and longing. Um, if you have uh, talked to various folks um, in this culture, if you talk about uh, fear or dread or terror of God and God's judgment, sometimes the response you'll get back is, God is a God of love. God would never judge someone. Uh, God has no anger or wrath against sin. God is a God of love. And God is a God of love. And God says that's inherently part and parcel of who and what He is. And our ability to know love simply comes from God Himself. But God is more than the singular quality of love. God also is perfectly just. And God has a perfect hatred for sin, that which is against Him and His goodwill. And you'll see throughout the Bible that people are generally encouraged to see God in a fearful way. And that fear comes in two different ways. One is that we are called to fear God because God can judge us as our sins deserve. And that is a terrifying thought. And the other is because God is so awesomely unique, so God and we are so not God, that there's also a reverent fear of God that's always appropriate for all of us at all times. To the first one, listen to this from Matthew 10.28. 
Jesus was going to send his disciples out, and as he talked to them about sharing with others in Israel the message that the Messiah had come, he also spoke past them in that initial time to the kind of persecution they and their followers would face, and that it would be persecution to death. They would suffer greatly for being associated with Christ. But this is what he said, Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Now, if you put this in contemporary culture and what's going on, when we read accounts of what Christians and how Christians are treated in the Middle East, I'm thinking of ISIS here, beheadings, uh, executions, a death by fire, death by pushing people off mountains. That sounds fearful, doesn't it? That's going on today. That's not 2,000 years ago. That's current. That sounds fearful. But to that kind of persecution, Jesus says, don't worry about that. Don't worry if they push you off a mountain. Don't worry if they behead you. Don't worry if they choose to execute you. This is what He says. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That gives a perspective, doesn't it? Don't worry about those whose power stops at the ability to harm you physically. You do need to fear, and this is the one you need to fear, the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. This is a Michelangelo, I believe from the Sistine Chapel, the image of people being cast into hell. Jesus says that's an appropriate, awe-filled fear to have towards God, a holy, righteous, wrathful God. If you're, these, uh, by the way, the verses are on your study sheet. At least the references are. Out of Revelation 6, Revelation 6 takes you chronologically to chapter 19 in the book of Revelation. The, the texts we're reading here go right before the second coming of Jesus to the earth. And this is how John describes what's going on just before Jesus returns to the earth. He says, starting at verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne, God the Father, this is from Revelation 4 and 5, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now these are people who have rejected God's appeal to repent and believe the Gospel. And they know that when the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world in His substitutionary death on the cross... When He returns, the Lamb is now the line of the tribe of Judah, and He returns with the righteous, wrathful judgment of God. And they're terrified, and they should be. This is God, the awesome God, in wrath and judgment. And friends, if, we don't, if we've never in our life had a fear of God, a dread of God because He judges us rightly, we don't know God and we don't know ourselves. If we stand before God with our own sins, friends, it will be the most terrifying experience you and I can imagine. Because the next moment would be we would be consigned to hell. Now, the great thing for Christians, and I think this is true for most of you, for probably a few of us here it is not, the great thing about this is this, that Jesus in His death on the cross bore the perfect judgment and wrath of our awesome, fearful God in His body on the tree. And you and I today don't have to fear and dread God in this way. But if we've never come to that point where we've received the forgiveness Jesus paid for on the cross, 
bearing our sins, bearing the wrath of God, rose from the dead to offer us justification. This is the judgment of God that we still fall under. The awful, terrifying dread of a God who can kill both body and soul in hell. John 5.24 says that when we've received Jesus and forgiveness, we've passed out of judgment and into life. If you've done that, if you've simply received the gift of eternal life offered through Jesus, this absolute petrifying dread of God because He's going to judge our sins, this is a dread that we've passed. But if you haven't, this God is a God of wrath and perfect judgment. And this is an appropriate fear of God. The fear of the one who can throw body and soul into hell forever. So, that's one appropriate fear of God. Our awesome God. The second one is this though. It's fearful reverence. Fearful reverence. You know, I can't do two things at the same time. So I have to cue your picture and my text. I'm still getting used to this. Fearful reverence. Um, you'll see scenes in heaven, I'm thinking here of Revelation 4 and 5, where you see saints and angels in heaven, and when they see God, and when the, the uh, angels around His throne cry out, holy, 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 they fall on their faces before the awesome holy God they're in front of. They fall on their faces. Not only that, but when you see holy prophets from past times, you see men who are in right relationship with God through faith, and yet when they see God in the awesome reality that He is, even a little bit, they fall down, they are absolutely undone. Now it's not because God is going to consign them to hell. It's because God is God and we're not. It's because He is awesome in a way, guys, that we will never get tired of. So if you read Isaiah 6, Isaiah is taken, translated up into heaven, and he sees God in the temple in heaven. And when he sees God in the awesome reality that he is, he says, I am a man undone. My lips are unclean. The lips of those in the nation are unclean. We're unholy. This is the holiest guy probably in the nation of Israel at that time. And he's saved. That is, he has faith in God as his Savior. And yet when he sees God in his awesome reality, he just says, I am falling apart here, Lord. I can't stand up. If you read Ezekiel 1, this is an image of the, the uh, scene you see in Ezekiel 1. You know, there's an old gospel song about the wheel and the wheel. That's the only reason many people have ever heard of Ezekiel 1, but it's a great, great passage. And like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel sees the presence of God gloriously coming in this vision from the north down towards the land of Israel. And what he sees is this almost like a thunderstorm. There's a cloud. There's thunder and lightning. There's this glowing mass in the middle in which sits God. And the wheels and the wheels and the angels that are coming with them, they're simply accompanying God. And he says this, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face. Seeing God just a little bit in His awesome reality, Ezekiel says, I couldn't stand up. I simply fell apart. This is, this is awe as fearful reverence. This should be part of our experience morning, noon, and night. In my quiet time this morning, I happened to be in 2 Corinthians, and two times, 2 Corinthians 5.11 and 7.1, Paul commends believers to holiness through godly fear. Through godly fear. Through godly awe and fear of God. 
Listen to this from David in Psalm 33, verses 7 through 9. He says, and listen to what he combines related to awe and fear. He says, Shout for joy in the Lord, you righteous. Praise befits the upright. The righteous should praise and worship God. Verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? Because He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. This is the Creator, powerful God. This is the God of all power and wonder. And David combines joy, fear, and awe. These are elements of awe and reverence for believers. Fear and awe are elements of our praise of God. Check this image out and put this in your own mind. If you guys can see, on the top, sort of middle, can you see those little stick men standing up right on the top of that cliff? So put, your, put yourself in your mind's eye where those guys are. So if I'm standing on the top of a precipitous sheer cliff, I have elements of appropriate fear and joy at the same time. So if I'm standing on the edge, I know that if I fall, there's long fall, there's the splat on the rocks below, and I'm dead. There's a certain sense of awe, isn't there? Fear, fearfulness of the power of gravity to end my life. But isn't there at the same time, if I'm standing there, isn't there also a sense of joy and wonder at the space I see to the sea and to the sky above, maybe the wind in my face, I've got elements of heart-stopping, awesome fear on one hand and joy and exhilaration on the same. And that should be true for us as believers in our relationship with God. This awesome, fearful reverence that isn't separated from joy because it's an appropriate apprehension of God, of who He is. Even for us, and especially for us as the redeemed. God is the greatest power, the most awesome person or thing we can ever experience. And to have the heart-gripping, awe-inspiring fear and reverence for His greatness, that is an appropriate and a good thing. There's some other verses on your sheet I'm going to pass over this morning just for time. Let me switch to Hebrews 12. Moses was another guy who's exalted for his faith in God as Redeemer and Creator in Hebrews 11 and again in Hebrews 12. And listen to this description of Moses. And this is looking back to Exodus when Moses was on Mount Sinai and met God. And if you remember that scene, again, it's just it's outstanding. Uh, Moses is on the mountain and God comes down and it's thunder and it's lightning and the earth is shaking and the trumpet blast grows louder and louder, and louder, and the people are terrified. And Moses, who is God's man, Moses who's in right relationship with God, it says of Moses, indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Just like Isaiah, I'm undone. God's holy, God's God, I'm not. I've got this fearful reverence of God's awesome qualities. And last, from this Hebrews 12 passage, this conclusion, <clears throat> excuse me, speaking to believers, the author to Hebrews says this, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. That we should be worshiping God in reverence and awe because of who He is and what He's like. He's a consuming fire. 
He is so unique, so holy in a way we never will be. We share His likeness and His image in our redemption, but God will always be God and we will not. Worship, awe. God is a consuming fire. Guys, this is the thing too, and I love this. If you hear a teaching about the fear of God, we need to understand something about fearing God, and Paul Tripp says it here, Fear is only ever defeated by fear. Only awe of God can ever rob horizontal awe of its power. You know, most of us are scaredy cats. And by that I mean we fear the wrong things. So most of us live in quiet dread of other people and their opinion of us. Or we fear losing our income, losing our job. We fear housing issues. We fear relational issues. Whatever. This is the liberating thing about living with a fearful reverence for God. If we fear God as we should, as He deserves, we won't fear other things in ways we shouldn't. The appropriate, awe-filled fear, reverence for God, liberates us from smaller fears. And when you read of stories and accounts in the Bible of guys who simply go out and do the do... They know God, they live in the fear of God, and because of that, they've been liberated from smaller fears. You know, I think for most of us as Christians, and we talk with lots of people and have for a long, long time, most of us as Christians are living fear-filled lives, and it's not related to God. And if we will see God as He is and live in the appropriate fear of Him, guys, you'll be liberated from all smaller fears, controlling carnal fears in the fear of God. If you say to yourself, I lack the appropriate awesome fear of God and I'm fearing other things, meditate in the Word on passages like Exodus 19, God's holy presence, or Isaiah 6, or Revelation 4 and 5, or Revelation 19, or you could take your pick, Ezekiel 1. But see God as He is, and as we see God more fully as He is, His awesome reality, as we live more fully in the awesome, reverent fear of Him, guys, other fears, they're swept away you have peace and joy because the fear of god liberates you from smaller fears so fear dread of god if i see him in his judgment reverence for god as someone in a redeemed relationship with him there's also that second aspect of god which is joy and wonder we don't just reverence god through fear we also reverence him in joy and wonder and the important thing in life is this said gk chesterton It's not to keep a steady system of pleasure and composure, which can be done quite well by hardening one's heart or thickening one's head, he says, but to keep alive in oneself the immortal power of astonishment and laughter and a kind of young reverence. Thinking of awe as joy and wonder, Chesterton warns against simply going through the motions of life and leaving joy and wonder behind. But we don't have to. And we can remain, if you will, young at heart through an awe-filled perspective of God that engenders joy and wonder. And you'll find that you have strength for living because of God's joy and wonder. Listen to the way the sons of Korah said this in Psalm 43, verses 3-5. through They said, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling Of course, the psalmist here is talking about going to the temple to worship God, to meet God. I'll go to the altar of God, 
to God my exceeding joy. God Himself is my joy. And I will praise You with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are You downcast, O my soul, and why are You in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist says when I'm downcast, when I'm depressed, when I'm facing the temptation to despair, I need to go to God, see His awesome reality again, because God is my exceeding joy. There was a a Friday, I believe it was, many years ago. See if I can get this. Uh, It was the end of a long week, and frankly it was the end of a a long push for me. And and back before I was full-time with this church, I had a business that was a full-time business, and I had responsibilities here that were essentially full-time as well. And and God given me enough abilities and energy that I could push myself for a long time uh, and accomplish a lot of things. But the truth was, I had simply worn myself out. And I'm sitting there at the table with Kathy and the girls, and as I'm thinking about things, I realize I am just melting down. And I'm in tears at the table, and I'm trying to figure out what is going on. And I tell them, finally I realize, I have no joy left. I have no sense of wonder in life left. I just feel like I have just been wrung out, and there's nothing left. And Kathy and the girls prayed for me, and Bethany, my daughter, made a collage for me. And this hangs in my office today to remind me of this. It wasn't specifically the work that was my issue. It was I was trying to accomplish the things I felt God was calling me to do in my own strength. Nose to the grindstone, you know, going straight ahead, pushing hard, but forgetting where my strength would come from. Losing the sense of joy and wonder because I'd lost the sight of God Himself. And so Bethany created a number of pictures and images from our past that were vacations and other times of our family's joyful times. And then in the middle it says, let the wonder begin. And so this has hung in my office for years now and it's the reminder to Mike It's not just the work, it's losing sight of God, His awesome reality, that I lose my sense of wonder and joy. Guys, most often it's not the work we're called to, it's not the people we're interacting with that cause us to lose a sense of joy and wonder. It's we've lost sight of God Himself. In the vicissitudes of life and the challenges and the trials you and I face, if we lose sight of God, we lose our source of joy and wonder. And to have that reverent awe for God means we're filled back up with a sense of joy and wonder in His presence. Well, there's another element, and the last of the three, there's another element that I hope all of us experience related to awe and God. And it's the sense of awe as desire and longing. Awe as desire and longing. On the front end of that video clip that we started with, it had a quote from C.S. Lewis that says this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Isn't that good? It's like saying, I have an itch, and no matter what I do, I can't scratch it. Well, then it's, it's, it's an issue or it's a source that I'm not able to get to. So Lewis says, just logically, this isn't a carnal lust or desire. I realize that there's something in me that wants more. Is this one of the cutest kids you've ever seen in your life right there? Yeah. (laughs) Mr. Judah. We call him Judah Ben Allen, House of Wang. (laughs) 
He woke up. Um, where was I? Anyway, where was I? The itch. Yes, sorry. You know, I thought of a cheesy a joke on the front end which I spared the first service. Uh, in Kansas, would it be appropriate to say God is the God of Oz? Did you get that? It wouldn't have worked then either. Okay, thank you. So, I've got this itch and I can't scratch it. I recognize in it that it's something I'm wired for, but I can't find the solution to that sense of desire or longing. What's the deal? Well, Lewis concludes, you're made for something more than life on this earth. That it's not that you have a wrong desire, it's that it cannot be met here and now. And this is the sense of seeing God as He he is, the awesome reality of God, as the ultimate object of all our longings and desires. Now guys, I love that God has put so many things on this earth, so many good things for us to enjoy. Isn't, isn't that great? I mean, a bad day on planet earth for me is still a pretty good day. But yet there's this inner desire that something's not quite there. Listen to the way the sons of course said this in Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams. Remember, this is in a wilderness, the Middle East. Deer out there in the wilderness, a little, little something to chew here, a little something there, but a dry, dry area. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Life on this earth is okay. There's no necessary downside. But I realize there's something more. There are waters of life that I haven't tasted yet. And I made for them and I need them and I want them. Um, as people age, you'll hear them say that some of the joys of life lose some of their sense of satisfaction. That we get older. And part of this is physical, a physical reality, right? Our bodies decline. So even taste buds, maybe that steak doesn't taste as good to me today as it did 20 years ago, maybe. Some of the sense of, of less joy, maybe, or less desire fulfilled in life can come about because we're simply getting older. But there's another element to that, and it has nothing to do with age diminishing our ability to perceive or enjoy. And the other thing is this. If I have had those great vacations year after year, if I have had those singularly joy-filled holidays and I've experienced them over and over again, in other words, if I've tasted the blessings God has for me in this life and I've done it more than once, you know what I suddenly dawns on me? These things are good and I love them all and I bless God for all of them, but these things aren't the ultimate object of my desire and longing. I come to the conclusion, they're great, they're good, but I realize I'm made for something more. No matter how full life may be, here in a moment or a season of life, we're made for something more. And we'll find over time we have a longing that simply cannot be filled on planet Earth. And by the way, this does not diminish the reality of the blessings you and I get to experience every day here. And all of us here, we should turn thanks to God every day for the crazy, crazy number of ways He's blessed us. But none of the blessings on Earth can replace the reality of of the presence of God and that we're made for something bigger. David said it this way in Psalm 16:11, "In your presence is fullness of joy; in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore." 
Our greatest desires and longings will never be met on earth because they've always been meant to be fulfilled by God Himself. Listen to Tripp as we wind down. He says a couple things here. He said, look at your highest joys and deepest sorrows and you'll find where you reach for awe. This is back to what's the object of our affection. Who or what are we worshiping? Look at your highest joys, deepest sorrows, and you'll find where you reach for awe. He concludes with this. Only when awe of God rules my heart will I set everything else in my life in its rightful place. Joyful, perseverant obedience only ever grows in the soil of worship. You see, because worship is not just something I occasionally do, but the foundation of who I am, and because I worship my way through every moment of every day, if my heart is not given over to the worship of God, it will give itself to the worship of something else. An idol. Whatever has captured the awe of my heart will also set the agenda for the things that I desire, think, choose, say, and do. The moral life of every human being is driven and shaped by awe, either awe of God or awe of something in God's creation. So ask yourself when you go home or this evening before you put your head down to go to sleep, what's the ultimate object of awe in my life? What is it? Fear, worship, wonder, desire, longing. Where does all that rest for me? That's the direction I'm heading. That's where I'm going. Listen to this. You remember that the goal of beholding God in His awesome reality is not only to see Him as He is, but to be transformed more fully into His image. So with that and those three lenses, as we behold God in His awesome reality, we become like Jesus Himself, fearless to all lesser fears. As we find in the Lord Himself the ultimate object of both dread and reverence. We lose Smaller fears. As we behold God in His awesome grandeur, we become more joy-filled. We know the truth of Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. As we see God's awesome joy-infusing goodness in creation and in redemption. And last, as we behold the desire of all desires, God is the desire of the ages, we develop a longing for the presence of God Himself as Jesus had a desire for the greatest pleasure in the presence of the One in whom all desires and longings are ultimately met. We're going to rise to worship in just a minute. And as we do that, just be thinking again about the awesome reality of the One we come to worship and adore. Father, thanks for sending Your Son to absorb the wrath that was rightly due our sin. Father, thanks that the terror of judgment is gone for believers. Father, thanks for the awesome reality that is You that still engenders fearful reverence, joy, and longing ultimately fulfilled in Your presence forever. And Lord, we, we bless You and you, we worship You that Jesus has made all these things possible for us. In His name, Amen.